Resurrection conviction from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is one of the great chapters regarding assurance, the implications of our faith, and, it's, and it is so important for all of those who place our faith, our present, our past, our future in Jesus Christ to be fully acquainted as to what the Apostle Paul was writing and the reason why he was writing to the early church, to the people at Corinth. He talks about some essentials of our faith. And so when moments of doubt arise, we need to go to the Scriptures. Because someone said, I forgot who it was, they said, we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh and the devil. Any one of them are constantly, when one stops, the other one takes over and so on and so forth, it goes. And we want to share with others what we believe. It's not just for us, for ourselves, but this gospel has to continue, has to be shared because of the Great Commission that Jesus told us that we are to go into all the world sharing the beauty of the gospel. So, verse 1 tells us about the essential gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And when the Apostle Paul says, taking your stand, he really means that. When you take a stand, you're, you're, you're unmovable. Your position is fixed. doesn't matter the opposition, doesn't matter the persecution, this is something that you will not compromise upon. This is what it means to take a stand. And sometimes there is a discussion in the church about what is the message we as Christians are called to share with other people. Some folks say it, is, it includes, it, it, it involves helping the poor, experiencing healing, finding wholeness, etc., etc. Now these may be the results of the gospel. But in his epistles, Paul made us clear that this is not the crux of the message. The, go- the word gospel means good news. So when Christians talk about the gospel, they're simply telling the good news about Jesus. Our problem is our sin with the penalty of sin being death. God's provision is salvation through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again. And we come to be included in that salvation by repentance of our sins and faith in Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, we go on to live a new life in Him. Obviously, that is is the crux of the Gospel, but from there, everything else flows. And it is impossible to exaggerate the importance of having a true gospel for our faith. Many denominations, many pastors from many different pulpits are in this to believe in time, uh, diluting, lowering the bar of what it means to believe in the true gospel. Well, you don't have to believe that and you don't have to believe in that. 
and you still be calling yourself a Christian? Well, I don't know. Martin Luther King, for example, Baptist pastor. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. He didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't know what he believed in the end. And still, so you can be a Baptist and still not be a Christian, really. There you go. Go figure that one out. Therefore, we cannot exaggerate the importance of taking our stand on the truth. It is because of this that it has been attacked, twisted, diluted or simply rejected outright. And we need to get this right if we are going to stake our lives upon it. Verses 3 to 4, the fact died for resurrection. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Why is the Scripture so important? Because of this. Because of this. So what do you, what do you have to do when you have moments of doubt? Go to the Scriptures. It is interesting that Paul does not begin with the birth of Christ, although that is such an important truth. No, neither does he mention the sinless life of Christ that enabled him to be the perfect sacrifice, the, 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 lamb, the lamb of God without blemish. He does not mention the miracles of Christ, even though there were so many of them that displayed his divine power. No, he begins with the death of Christ because That is where the gospel begins. It begins with his sacrificial death in payment for our sins. Crucified, as we risen as the scriptures say. And just as as we saw on the previous couple of Sundays, just as the scriptures foretold, particularly Isaiah chapter 53, there are, there are well over 300 verses concerned with the subject of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament. That means that it's a pretty important subject. It's not one of those, oh, you can believe it in if you want. No, no, if you don't believe in it, I'll dare I say it and I will say it, you're not a Christian. You might carry the label, you might even have the little fish behind your car. But you're not a Christian. Jesus rising from the dead is the greatest news ever. But it's difficult to accept because dead people tend to stay dead. Because of this, many of those so-called alternative Some, even Christians, come with an alternative explanation of what really happened at Jesus' so-called resurrection, they say. And they claim that in order to get to the truth of the Bible, to the Scriptures, we we need to strip away some of the so-called myth, they call it a myth, surrounding him. Rubbish. Rubbish. 
Paul makes it clear that the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of Jesus' story. To talk about a Jesus who lived and died and did not rise from the dead is like just another, any other good teacher, like the Buddha or like Muhammad or anybody else really. Any church that doesn't preach this might be a good church. It might do a lot of good things for a lot of people, but don't call yourself a Christian church. Don't. It's embarrassing. The evidence of the resurrection, verses 5 to 11. Even from the rest days, people were obviously already questioning the events surrounding the resurrection. Like I said, people since... The garden, people who died tend to stay dead. And that's been the same story since the beginning of time. This is why Paul gives us the most comprehensive list of eyewitnesses who can testify that they have seen the risen Lord. He mentions Peter and the other apostles and 500 people who also saw Jesus. Where did these 500 people, when did it happen? It could have happened when Jesus gave his great commission in Matthew chapter 28. And some 20 years, Paul is writing this some 20 years after the event. And many of those witnesses who were there then would have been still alive now in Paul's day. So he says, if anybody has any questions, get on the phone, get on Facebook, and and, and you know, ask them to your friends and talk about it. No, go and talk to these people. That's what we used to do, personally. Go and check them out. I'll give you the list. I'll give you the address. Go and check them out. They were there. They can tell you. It's not just one person who's a nutcase. All of these people. So this, there was something there. It actually happened. Not only did Paul talk to folks who saw the risen Christ, but he himself saw him as well. Not in the same way as Peter and others, but he saw him. And this is why he says in verse 8, he says, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Which is an interesting description that he takes for himself. Now, when did Jesus appear to Paul on the road to Damascus? Obviously, it happened within the first five years after the resurrection of Jesus. And it was this special encounter which enabled Paul to, to become an apostle, though he was not an eyewitness of the resurrection like the others. This is why he says, I'm, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I, I am actually one abnormally born. And humbling himself, he says, I'm a bad boy. I was a bad boy. I used to persecute the church. Sometimes our past can catch up with us and and in moments of doubt, many of us here can say, wow, I've done some stupid things in my life. And to our shame, 
you know, that's, that's, that's part of who we are. But to God's glory, we are here and singing his praises. Didn't we sing some wonderful stuff already? Our life, it's, it's, we're all, in, in a way, we're all abnormally born, right? But praise be to God that we're here. Someone else who had a checkered pass, John Newton, you heard of him. He was once a slave trader before he came to faith and, and he wrote Amazing Grace. A few years before he died, a friend was having breakfast with him and uh, as was their custom, they read from the Bible after a meal. And because Newton's eyes were, he was going blind, he was going dim, his friends would read and then Newton would comment briefly on the passage. And that day the selection was from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when the words, by the grace of God, I am what I am, verse 10, he commented on this. Newton, it says, that the story goes, Newton was silent for quite a few minutes, long time. He paused. And then he said, and he said this, and I quote, he says, I'm not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and would cleave to that which is good. I am not what I hope to be, but soon I shall put off off mortality and with it all sin. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say... I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan, I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's beautiful, isn't it? So what are the negative consequences Verses 12 to 19. What is, by, by that I mean, what are the negative consequences if, if all the stuff that if all we are reading about the, about the resurrection of Jesus, if all of this is untrue, what are the consequences? Some strange ideas were already emerging in Corinth in some of these churches that were planted. Ideas where... Gnosticism was starting to come in and, and they started to believe in, in, in Jesus' resurrection but they didn't understand how that followed through to their own life and they, didn't, they started to doubt in their own resurrection. Yet there is an intimate link for us between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of those who believe in him. To deny one is to deny the other. Mind you, it doesn't seem to spot to stop a lot of religions out there that follow leaders who, who are dead. But for us, 
it, 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 it certainly does. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And this is what the Apostle Paul was, was going on about. Doing here in verse 14. First of all, first implication is our preaching is useless. What I'm doing here is utterly useless. You're wasting your time. It makes no sense at all for me to stand here and for you to go out there and tell others about Christ who is still dead. Verse 14, your faith is useless. Your confidence is not in a living Lord, but in a dead one. We apostles, he says, are false witnesses. We are peddling a lie. We are liars when we say that Jesus is risen. Your faith is futile. Verse 17, a dead Jesus cannot help you. Wasn't that? You are still in your sins. Verse 17, and, 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 and you still carry the, the, the guilt and the consequence of sin because God did not accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, we are dead. All of us, we are still dead in our sins. And those Christians who have died are also lost at 18. A few of us have, have had a few funerals in the last six months or a year. Loved ones, people that we walk with in the faith. And it's sad to see them go. But it's not a goodbye, but it's a see you later. Right? This is the hope that we have. But if that is taken away from us, there is no hope for eternal life if Jesus is still in the grave. All those Christians who were buried at the cemetery are still there, body and soul. That's it. There's nothing. That's why he says, in between, he says, just do what the rest of the world does. Just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Well, what's, you know... That's it. And what about us Christians? If all of this is a farce, then we as Christians should be pitied. You know, losers. Verse 19. Of Jesus and nothing but fools who go through the hardship, the persecution for the sake of Jesus. And people should actually feel sorry for us for being so stupid. Just this week... um, Nigeria, some Christians, were about a dozen of them, were going to the north uh, to witness, to share the gospel. And um, one of the Islamist groups uh, captured all 12 of them and they held hostage because they went out there with a mission, men, women with a mission to share the gospel. And now only their lives are in God's hands. You probably, you and I are sitting here, you know, in the luxury of our, these premises. And you're saying, why are they so stupid? Why are they doing this? Well, because God compelled them to go. To risk life and limb. These are heroes of the faith. And this is the, exactly what happened with the early Christians, with the early church. They knew the consequences of standing up 
when a Roman soldier held a sword to their throat, says, do you confess Christ? And they would say, absolutely. And they were gone. But if that was all a lie, shouldn't we be pitied and die from nothing? If we have no reason to believe in any of these promises that Jesus made because there is nothing more than a a corpse in a rotting tomb and we somehow have been deluded in all of this, it's all a farce, it's all a lie, we've been conned, what's the point? This is why Paul says that to deny the resurrection of Jesus is to rip the heart right out of Christianity and make it nothing more than an empty shell. But obviously, that's not the end of the story. Verse 20, the positive consequences, if it is true. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstly, it means that death is temporary. Because Jesus has risen, all these terrible things that Paul spoke of in verses 13 to 19, they are simply not true. Because of the resurrection, our Physical bodies are temporarily in the grave. Our souls are already gone to heaven to be with Jesus, but our bodies are still there, obviously. And one day they're waiting to be awakened by the sound of the trumpet at his return. Jesus is the source of resurrection and life. And I know you're going to say to me, well, what about all those people that have been cremated? What about those people eaten by sharks? consumed by fire, blah, blah, blah. What happens to them? They're not burying a grave. I say, well, the one who designed each and every atom in the universe, don't you think that he's capable of bringing it all together? If we have been created in his image, don't you think that means something? Jesus is the source of resurrection and life. Just as Adam was the source of sin and death, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits. Remember how for the Jews, for the Israelites, they had to bring the the first part of the harvest, they had to offer it to God as, as as a thank you for the harvest. Well, Jesus' resurrection is a thank you for the harvest of the resurrection of new life the first fruits. But this will not happen until the end of the age. The resurrection is the beginning of the conquest of death. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed, verse 26. That conquest, that complete conquest has started but is not yet finalised. It's a bit like the moment that the, the Allies landed in France, in Normandy, That wasn't the end of the war. That was the beginning of the end, wasn't it? That event marked the end of the Nazi regime and Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death. Secondly, there's no need to fear death. Being afraid of dying is a very natural emotion. And as Christians... 
We don't need to be ashamed of being uncomfortable, even perhaps even talking about death, but should also not be afraid. When someone close to us dies, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that it is okay to grieve with that friend or family member, but we should not grieve as those who have no hope. Our grieving is different. And the reason we face death with courage and hope is the resurrection. My, my body will one day, as, as it's, it's getting worse every morning I'm looking in the mirror, it's getting worse. Right? But one day it's going to be much, much worse when it's six foot under. But that's not the end. Because this body be awaiting its marvellous day of the resurrection. And so will yours. As someone has said, death is not extinguishing the light from the Christian. It is putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. Thirdly, there's more to life. Folks, let's stop living as though this life is all there is. Let's stop living as though we've put all the eggs in this basket here. We need to think hard about the words of verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And I think many have a hard time understanding this. Yes, let me explain. There are fringe benefits for me as a country. As a Christian living in a, one of the wealthiest countries, perhaps the wealthiest country in the world. Surveys say that on average, people who go to church do indeed enjoy better health, have happier marriages, are more successful in their careers and have more money than people who don't go to church. Even if there were no resurrection, even if we all just die and stay dead, maybe we could say that we would still choose to be a Christian for the new lifestyle. Good morals, you know, that type of stuff. And it is unfortunate. It is sad, in fact, tragic. But this is what most of Christianity in the West has been reduced to, a lifestyle. It is no more than a lifestyle promoted by the likes of Joel Osteen and his ilk. It would have been... Apostle Paul would have, would have been absolutely shocked by this. Jesus died just to give us a better lifestyle. No, it doesn't cut it. Because there are many parts of the world today where Christians understand very clearly what Paul meant when he says that Christians are pitiful fools if you're simply living for this life. People in places like China, many pastors... Their families and members 
undergoing re-education camps at this very moment. You know what re-education camps, we used to call them concentration camps during the Second World War. It's happening right now. I don't hear too much of it in the news, mind you. Northern Nigeria, northern India. I think a lot of, if, if you were to give these people a copy of the book, uh, Your Best Life Now, I'm sure they'd, they'd memorise it, wouldn't they? Great! Isn't this wonderful? Your Best Life Now. No! Their life has actually become much harder because they are Christians. This goes beyond any lifestyle decision. Yet they look forward to what is ahead. They would be nuts if they didn't believe in the resurrection because for them the resurrection is all that they live for, for Christ. And it should be the same for us. Finally, let me go back to verse 2 where we read, if you hold firmly to the word. Does this mean that uh, our salvation depends on us, on something we must do? No, because that would make our faith based on what we do, not on what has been done. Most of the religions of the world are do. For Christians, it's done. And we do because of what's been done. What Paul is saying is that the proof that you have not believed in vain is that you do hold firmly, you do stand in the word. The late pastor, let me finish with this story, the late pastor Ray Stedman told this story and he said, uh, some years ago a young man called me up and said, I'm tired of being a Christian. I'm fed up. I've tried my best and nothing seems to work so I'm going to quit. I just passed, I just needed to let you know that. And I said, this is Ray Stedman, he says, the response was, I think it's a good idea. Why don't you do just that? Why don't you just give it, give it up? And he said, what do you mean? Well, I replied, you said it. You said you were going to quit and think it's a good idea. Why don't you stop trying to be a, a Christian and go ahead and live the way you like? Pay no attention to the Bible or the church or the Word of God or anything and just enjoy yourself. Why don't you? And he said, you know I can't do that. And I said, yes I do. And I think it is about time you knew it too. The test of a true faith, you see, is that you cannot quit. You cannot quit. As a result of all he has said, the Apostle concludes this chapter with this marvellous challenge in verses 56 to 58. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. I'll repeat it. Let nothing move you. I'll repeat it. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves, and this is the, because what's been done, this is what we do, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. 
Amen to that.